0: of the omniscience of God, the fact that he knows all things. He knows himself fully. God knows everything that will happen. God knows everything that could happen in any given number of scenarios. God knows what's going to happen with the storm. We've heard all kinds of reports. Only God knows what's going to happen with it. David's focus is on the fact that God knows me personally. He knows you personally. That's what the focus of the chapter is on. I've labeled the verses uh, 1 through 18, the Lord and me. In the first six verses, we saw that the Lord knows all about me. He knows this personally. He knows all about me, everything there is to know. I said last week that he knows what I'm doing in verse 1. Verse 2, he knows what I'm thinking. Verse 3, he knows where I'm going. Verse 4, he knows what I will say. And verse 5, he knows what I need. He knows all there is to know about me. His knowledge is just far beyond our own understanding. And David is so taken with the infinite knowledge of God that he exclaims in verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. He can't even grasp the heights of the the knowledge of God toward him. Then in verses 7 through 12, we saw that the Lord is always with me. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present with the fullness of his being at all times. This is a great mystery we cannot comprehend, I know. None of us can comprehend that fully. It doesn't mean that God is part of his creation. He is the creator. It does mean you can never escape from the presence of God. If you're a believer, obviously the Holy Spirit indwells you. He's always with you. And David tells us in this section that, that we cannot escape from God. Even if we go to heaven, we can't escape from God. Even if we go to the abode of the dead, we can't escape from God. We can't escape from God if we travel great distances, even following the sun across on its circuit we can't escape from God in the sea he says and we cannot escape from God in the darkness tonight we move on in the in the in the next section verses 13 to 18 regarding the Lord and me and and these verses talk about the omnipotence of God the the doctrine which teaches that that God is all-powerful he's all-powerful Wayne Grudem is always very makes everything very understandable for us in his definitions he says that God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all his holy will. He's able to do all his holy will. That's a very good and concise definition that only Grudem could come up with. Read other theology books, and they have a definition that long. How is it possible for God to do all his holy will? Well, he's able to do it. That's why. God is able. He has the power to carry out all that he has willed. We read many times in the Bible those words. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And normally, we see that, we see that often in, in the context of, of women bearing children who, who are beyond childbearing age, and God does the impossible for them. God enabled Sarah to bear a child beyond her years, and Mary and Elizabeth, and, and, and it talks about that in those contexts. It says also in the context regarding Mary and Elizabeth, nothing shall be impossible with God. So we know God can do anything. We ask the question, does that mean God can sin? Of course course God cannot sin. He can't sin. That's a contradictory statement. He can't lie. We see that in Scripture. He cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. God can't sin. He's able to do, and he has the ability to do, all his holy will. What God does is holy. He acts consistently with his nature always, never inconsistently. But he is our our all-powerful God. As it says in Ephesians 3.20, he's able to do... Far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Well, let's pick it up in verse 13 tonight. And here in verses 13 to 18, we see that the Lord sovereignly made me. The Lord sovereignly made me. Now, how does God describe, how does David, brother, describe the unlimited power of God in these verses? The Bible often speaks of the power of God in creation. God created the worlds. Hebrews 11:3. 3, the worlds were prepared by the word of God. And so we know that God's all powerful in his creation. But that's not what David chooses to talk about in this chapter. He's being very personal, and he, he talks about his own birth. He talks about the fact that God worked in his own birth. He says, in effect, that the Lord sovereignly superintended over the process of his own birth in his mother's womb. And this is the power of God at work that David wants us to, wants us to see tonight. He, first of all, says that there, the Lord has a direct involvement in our birth. He's directly involved in our birth. In our birth. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says, You form my inward parts, O Lord. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Knows it very well. So the Lord is directly involved in our birth. We've seen these pronouns of me and my and I throughout this chapter. David talking about himself and his relationship with God. Very personal in this chapter. We also see the, uh, the, other, the pronouns you and your here. Speaking of God, uh, and these uh, are purposely emphasized here. Look at in verse 13, 14. He says, you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you. Wonderful are your works. It is God, David wants us to know, who is behind the scenes in this business of the conception and development and birth of a child. God is working behind the scenes in this. David, yes, David knows that it's through biological processes that a child comes on. But he, he goes beyond that, and he says, no, the Lord is sovereign over this whole process. And the process is a very personal one, as, you, as we'll see in this section here, because God is very personal. He, God is not a, a human like us, but he's very personal, and he's infinite. He's, but he's, he's also spoken of showing, of, of showing feeling and of, of knowing things and of choosing things and of acting uh, all the traits of personality, because God is personal, not an impersonal force. He's very personal, and he's personally involved in the birth of a baby. He says in verse 13, David says, Lord, you form my inward parts. You formed them. You created my inward parts. It's God that originates life. He puts you together the way he wanted you to be. He says he formed my inward parts. Now, the, words, the phrase inward parts is actually literally kidneys. In the original. It says, The Lord, form my kidneys. Now, physically speaking, kidneys are organs that are vital and they're hidden as well. God made our vital organs. And the point is, if he made our vital organs, he was in he also had something and everything to do with the rest of our body as well, shaping our entire bodies. And the kidneys were also thought at that time to be the seat of emotions. And so God not only made us Uh, our bodies but he made us with a personality he made us with emotions he made us with the ability to to uh cry and to laugh and to express anger and to have a sense of humor and all these things that make up personality god did this genesis 127 says god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them And so we're made in the likeness of god And, and so we have what god has these traits of personality we're able to express ourselves emotionally he says, you form my inner parts. And then he says, you wove me in my mother's womb. In other words, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And, and he's using his poetic language here as one would maybe weave cloth together. God put us together as well. In Job 10, Job was complaining about his lot in life and his difficulties and his trials that he's going through. But he points out a great truth in, in the midst of all that suffering. He says this in Job 10, 8 to 11. He says to the Lord, your hands... Fashioned me altogether, and would you know? Would you now destroy me? He says, "Remember now, you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curl me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews?" See, Job realized centuries earlier what David would later write about. That is that God is sovereign over the whole birthing process. Verse 14, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This knowledge of God gives David the reason to praise God. He says, I will, I will give thanks to you. And that word thanks, there's really no word for thanks. Uh, that's, it's translated that way, but he's talking about a, It's a confession he's making. He's saying that, and, and this word is used, depending on the context, to make a confession of sin or a confession of the attributes and power of God. And in this context, David is, is confessing that God is to be praised for his attributes, for who he is, because of the amazing handiwork that goes into a, 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 the birth of a child. It's kind of like what the elders did in Revelation four ten and 11 when they gave praise to God for his creation. It says there, "...they will fall down before him who sits on the throne." And they will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their, cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Because of your will, they were created and they exist. And, so, and that, of course, includes the creation of human beings. And so they gave praise to God. They will give praise to God in Revelation 4. And so David says, in effect, I will confess the greatness of your power, Lord, because of, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'll confess that as, as fact. He says, I'm, wonderfully, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. What a great statement. David says that his reflection upon his birth causes him to be astonished and in total awe of God because he's been fearfully made. Psalm 100, verse 3, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. And he says, I am wonderfully made. There's nothing ordinary about the process that goes on in the womb. It's an extraordinary process. It's a special process. It's something that's a wonderful thing. Every baby is an extraordinary work of God, and it's to be marveled at. A human being is not, you know, come from the process of natural selection, but it's the amazing sovereignty of God and amazing power that God displays. He says in verse 14, Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. David praises the works of God in general as being wonderful, but also in particular this idea of, the, of, of a baby being born in the womb. It's, a, it's just a thing of surpassing greatness. He says, wonderful are your, are your works. It surpasses all that he can even comprehend. And when we read the scripture, we should come to a similar understanding of God, that he's wonderful in all his works. The, the creation of a child, think about this, is an absolute marvel of, of engineering. Amazing. Uh, we're not random acts of chance, but instead the sovereign hand of God has designed us. And if you just study the human anatomy, re- it reveals the amazing work of God, the detail that's involved. We should stand back every time a child is born and marvel at the handiwork of God, shouldn't we? Now, I know when, when children are born and babies are born, everybody's excited. You know, everybody wants to hold the baby, and everybody says the baby's cute and all that. I get all that. Um, but. And we should have that idea, but the baby, the birth of a baby, should also turn our direction to God. And we should say, Lord, look what you have done. This great, uh, this great uh, creation you formed. The baby is precious, yes. Every baby is precious that, that's born, but God should be seen at the same time as sovereign over all this. Years after Esau had departed from Jacob, he saw Jacob coming with all his family members and all his children And he says to Jacob, who are these with you? And Jacob says in Genesis 33, he says, the children. These are the children whom God graciously has given your servant. That was his response. So we're grateful for the children, but we praise the Savior. We praise the Creator for the children. The Lord said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, Before I formed you in the womb, same idea. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I I consecrated you. So God at work in the womb of... Uh, of the prophet, uh, in the pro- life of the prophet Jeremiah and in all lives. And so the Lord's sovereignty is seen in direct involvement in a child's birth. We don't know how that takes place. It's a mystery to us. But God is at work. And so this should cause us to praise the one who brought a child into the world. And then we can see God's sovereignty in the Lord's foreordination in our birth, his foreordination, the, the fact that he ordains all these things. It says in verses 15 and 16, my frame, David says, was not hidden from you when I, was, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. He says, my frame was not hidden from you. The word frame means literally bones. My bones were not hidden from you. In other words, the skeletal frame that I was born with, that bony framework of my body was not hidden from God, you know what takes place in the womb may be away from the public eye, but it's very public to God. He sees everything that's taking place, and God made us this way. He made the framework of our body. He knows what our size will be. He knows what our, what our statue statue will be. He, he he knows everything about us, how we're going to come out, and He says this was made in secret. Again, He's talking about the womb as being the place of, of uh, a secret place. In verse 15, he says, you skillfully, skillfully wrought me in the depths of the earth. In other words, I was intricately made with great care. I was skillfully wrought. I was, and the word really has got to do with embroidery. I was embroidered with great skill. You know, and once again, a poetic way of talking about this. I, I, Sandy has done, you know, I've seen her do tremendous things with crafts, unbelievable things, embroidery, and I couldn't tell you how all this works, trust me. Don't ask me any questions about this later on. Uh, crafts of all kinds. Uh, she's made things that have been in the fair that unbelievable. I, I always marvel at the works that she does. And David likens the development of the baby in the womb to embroidery. He says the Lord skillfully embroiders us, as it were. He makes us. He, he, he puts together our sinews and our veins and our nerves and our tendons and our muscles. The Lord goes through all these details. It's like a beautiful work of tapestry developed by a skillful embroiderer. That's how it is. And, you know, if you consider the anatomy of the human body, you're going to witness the tremendous detail that goes into it, the detail of the human anatomy. Some of you study that. Some of you are looking to be in the medical profession. Others in our church are and They study the human anatomy. I'm sure it's absolutely mind-boggling to look at these things. He says, I was skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, Depths of the earth, not literally underground. He's talking about, once again, poetically, to the womb, a way of referring to the dark and hidden interior of the womb. You know, in verses 11 and 12, turn back there for a minute. Verses 11 and 12, we, it talked about the darkness, and darkness is no obstacle to God. We looked at this last week. It says, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. So God is, is not, the, the darkness is not to create any kind of obstacle for God at all. It does for us, but not for him. And here's yet another illustration of the truth of God and, and this idea of darkness. Now, this is a very interesting statement. Listen to what John Calvin has to say about this verse. He says, Should an artist intend commencing a work in some dark cave where there is no light to assist him, How would he set his hand to it, and what way would he proceed, and what kind of workmanship would it result in? But God makes the most perfect work of all, child, in the dark, for he fashions man in the mother's womb. And so God, it says here, he skillfully brings us about in the depths of the earth. In verse 16, he says, "'Your eyes have seen mine unformed substance.'" my unformed substance, the embryo, in other words, the shapeless form of the embryo as it's developing in the womb, the unfinished form of the embryo. God sees the baby as it develops through all the nine months of the pregnancy. He sees all of it. Now, in our medical knowledge today, we have the opportunity to take a picture periodically, a sonogram, and we're able to look at that, and we can see something of the baby in there. At least if you're me, you're looking at it and you're kind of puzzled. You're like, yes, I think that's a baby right there. And you see something of the baby, and you say, see his hands maybe, and his feet, and so on. And some parts of the picture are vague. Some see better than others, apparently, or some imagine they see. But nevertheless, we can see some of this periodically. But this is all clear to God over the nine months. He sees all of it take place. Nothing is surprising to him about it because God is sovereign over the womb. So whoever and whatever you are, God has ordained you to be from the womb. He says in verse 16, In your book were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Your book, uh, some think it's the book of the living. Uh, Maybe it's a a figure of speech to describe the memory of God or how God records things. Obviously, God knows all things, just a way of, of communicating the truth that God knows all things. But at any rate, God knows all these things, and it says here, the days you've ordained, the days that, that are going to be for me. In other words, the days that I'm living right now have been preordained. They've been pre- the days that you have in your life, God has pre- predetermined the length of the time you're going to be on this planet. He knows how long you're going to live. He's determined that in advance. How many days has he determined? All of them, it says. God is like an architect who lays out the blueprint for our lives in advance. He knows how long you're going to be here. He knows what's going to happen to you. He knew long before you were born how long you would live. He knows all these things. Not only did he know it, but he ordained it to be so. It says in Job fourteen five, and Job recognized the same thing. He says, "Job says, man's days are determined; the number of his months is with you, Lord, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass." And then in Acts seventeen twenty six says that God has determined the appointed times of all people. God knows how long you're going to be here. How much time do you have on this planet? how much time we don't know do we some of us have seen in the last few years that we don't know how long we have on this planet some have more days than others and i'll tell you one thing we need to treasure every day that we have on the planet and we need to learn to invest it for eternity invest it for eternity teach us to number our days psalm 90 that we may apply our hearts to wisdom right So verses 13 to 16 present the work of God and the developing of a baby. And as you can see, the Lord is deeply involved in that development, not not aloof from it, not away from it. And he makes us all. We're all different. We're all unique, kind of like snowflakes. We're unique. We're all individuals. You know, we don't have to try to be somebody else other than who we are. You know, it's just tempting often to think, well, this person does this particular job better than I do. I need to be like that person. Because they're good at what they do, and I'm not so great at it. I need to be like that person. But God doesn't want us to be like somebody else, or else he would have made you like that person. This is tempting for all of us, I know, at times to think this. He wants you to be who you are because he made you who you are for his glory. He made you for himself. He made you to be the person you are. Don't take, don't take pride in that. That should humble us before God because God wants us to glorify him. He made us for himself. We have a real purpose in life, as you can see through these verses. God goes to all this trouble to put us here, to bring us here, and his sovereign purposes. So we have a purpose in life, and our purpose is to magnify Christ in our body, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 1. And So these ver- this is what these verses mean for those who know the Lord. We have a real purpose in life, to serve the Lord. But what impact does this passage have upon our world? What, how does the, the truth of these verses reflect upon our society? What does, it, what does it tell our society today? Well, for one thing, these verses refute the idea of abortion. Clearly, they show that life begins at conception rather than birth, and when you kill a baby uh, in the womb, you're not killing a, uh, simply killing a fetus, you are indeed killing a baby, a human life. Now That idea would have been unthinkable in Israel back in their, in their time. They didn't do Unlike many in America, they considered children to be a blessing. Psalm 127, verse 3 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Children were considered to be a blessing by God. But now we live in a nation that the stats I read said we put to death 1.3 1.3 million uh, babies a year in this country, and they say that averages out to 3,700 uh, 3, uh, children a, a day, every day, putting that, that many babies. That is absolutely staggering, and the methods they use are barbaric to do it. it doesn't, it's not becoming of a civilized society, is it? Do people even think about this stuff? And So these verses refute the idea of abortion. And then these, the truth of these verses, Psalm 139, 13, and 16, refute the idea of evolution. How absolutely, re- I mean, I've, never, I've never thought of evolution as anything but absolutely ridiculous and absurd and illogical. I can't even begin to understand why anybody would, would think that this is scientific at all. It's, it's, it's falsely called science. Evolution is cold, it's meaningless, it's purposeless, it's racist. By the way, this ought to be splattered on the new, daily news. Read the statements of The founders, Charles Darwin and Thomas Huxley and all those guys, read their statements about what they said about the races. It's a racist philosophy. It's based on chance. It's without purpose. It completely rejects the Creator. I cannot understand why any Christian, and there are many of them who do, I don't understand why any Christian would want to compromise with creation and evolution, put those two together somehow, and say, oh, they're both, they can come together. The whole idea is unbiblical and it's an insult to God, an insult to the human race even, who made, we were made in the image of God. So whereas the biblical teaching of our God is very personal and He's very personally involved in in the formation of the baby in the womb and and He's given us a purpose in life, evolution is just, uh, it's a machinery that is purposeless and meaningless and, and cold and harsh. What's David's response to all this in verses 17 and 18? He says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. Have you noticed a little pattern here in this Psalm 139? David will say some things about the Lord, and then periodically he steps back and he gives God praise for what he, he's just talked about. And he does it again here. And in verses 17 and 18, he is taken up with the fact that God thinks about him. God thinks about David. God thinks about you. He thinks about me. He says, how precious are your thoughts to me, or we could say your thoughts concerning me. That God would think about us at all is absolutely phenomenal. It's amazing. It is amazing. And the thought of God forming a baby in a womb is staggering to think about. It's an act of mercy that he would even extend any of his thoughts towards us at all. He says, how vast is the sum of them? If I, he says, if I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And just as you cannot count the grains of sand, you cannot number the thoughts or even know how many thoughts of God there are directed towards you. God loves you. He truly does. You know, you hear that in certain churches, but that's really true. God loves you and he, and he thinks about you. David says, when I am awake, I am still with you. When David wakes in the morning, the Lord is still with him, extending his thoughts toward him still then even. Day or night, awake or asleep, God thinking about David. Are you aware of the fact that God can, thinks about you? And this, this shows us his love, his compassion for us, his care for us. We don't normally think about this, but it's true. God thinks about his own. And so we are encouraged by God's knowledge as we, as we look at these verses in, in verses 1 through 18. We're comforted by his presence. We are. Amazed at the power of God and the, the creation of a baby in the womb and we're humbled by the, the fact that he would even think upon us at all. It's truly, it's truly a great God that we serve. And so the Lord's relationship with us is not impersonal. It's very personal. It's intimate. It's endearing. So we need to be encouraged by this truth tonight. The Lord and me in verses 1 through 18. And then in verses 19 to 22, the Lord and my enemies. The Lord and my enemies. Look at verses 19 to 22. And get ready to wrestle. <laughs> oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute. Why the sudden shift all of a sudden from... The Lord's intimate knowledge of me, the Lord thinks about me, the Lord loves me, the Lord created me, the Lord knows all about me, the Lord's always with me, all these kind of things. And all of a sudden, he turns around and he says, kill my enemies. (laughs) What what happened? I mean, when you're reading this, if you're really looking at this this passage carefully, you're thinking, maybe this belongs to another psalm somewhere, (laughs) or something doesn't seem to be right here. Uh... Now, all of a sudden, David's talking about his enemies. But the point is, if you read this carefully through this section here, David is so completely consumed for the honor of God. He's just talked about the honor and majesty of God, the greatness and power of God all this time. God is everything to David. He's so wonderful and so great and so majestic and so mighty and and so awe-inspiring. And now, how dare people arise against God and say things against him? and do, and commit acts against him. How dare they do this in David's mind? How dare they do this? And so he turns his attention to them and says, Lord, I've thought about you all this time and talked about you. Now, look, why are these guys opposing you? How horrible it is that they would do that. And God, David is angry and rightly so. This is what you could call righteous indignation. Uh, Mike talked about this in Ephesians, be angry and sin not, right? People would definitely dare to defy this majestic God who does all these wonderful things. It's the kind of anger, you you felt this anger before. You, don't tell me you haven't felt this kind of anger when maybe you've been in a place and people have been taking the name of God in vain, blatantly. Have you thought to yourself, wow, that really hurts me. That really is an insult to God. And, it, and you feel it in your soul. You feel like, wow. And maybe you get angry about it even. I remember uh, a supervisor I had in, in a workplace one time, and not supervisor, he was a general manager of the plant. He came in of the whole place, rather than not the plant, and people were doing that. And he was a Christian, and he said to everybody there, if you're going to say his name, please use it only in prayer, and everybody stopped, and nobody said a word after that. He was the general manager of the boss. I could tell he was not happy about the whole situation people blaspheming God and really ridiculing the Bible. And so you feel inside your soul, you feel something, and you think, wow, that's, that's hurtful. So David prays what is called an imprecatory prayer. You knew this was going to happen sooner or later, right, Ryan? We've talked about this in the last few years. Uh, by the way, I've never heard a sermon on an imprecatory prayer in my entire life. And I didn't want to be the first one to have to mention it. I'll be honest with you. So... Why don't we go ahead and sing Amazing Grace and go home right now? Imprecatory prayer means basically to curse someone. He's asking God to curse someone. Have you ever prayed this way? Think about this for a minute. Think about this. Have you ever prayed this way? I can tell you, being the Old Testament saint that I am, I have prayed this way. I, when I was, I don't know, 20 or so, I was passing through Dothan, Alabama. I'll never forget it. We were on a bus. And... Uh, Spent the night there, or something I don't remember anyway, I had money uh, for an offering I was going to give in church in my coat pocket in a suit, I put my suit thinking this is a brilliant plan, put my suit in a suitcase or my, my suit in a suitcase, yes, and with the money in the, in the front pocket thinking it's going to be protected in there, surely it'd be protected there, right? It wasn't protected there. Someone broke into it and stole the money. I was so angry that money honestly, the money was earmarked for God in my, in my, in my mind and for the church. I was so angry about this. I got on my knees and I said, Lord, whoever stole your money, I want him dead. Kill that person. I prayed this prayer. I seriously did. Uh, like I said, I got a little Old Testament in me, so you have to bear with me for a while. I prayed that prayer that God would kill the person, and I was dead serious about it. Later on, I realized that wasn't really right. I got right with God about that, but have you ever been felt that way about people? that have defied guy. Have you ever felt that way? David feels that way. And so David, first of all, verses 19, 20, has a death wish for his enemies. It says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. He is asking the Lord to slay the wicked. Now, the word wicked is very interesting. It doesn't mean just some general, it's not a general term for wickedness here. It means one who is a criminal, one who is a criminal deserving of punishment, who's committed a crime. We're not talking about some guy who was annoying to David. Lord, guy's really an irritant to me. Please do away, dispose of him immediately. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a hardened criminal, a criminal. The parallel word says in verse 19, Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. Men of bloodshed is a parallel term to, to uh, the wicked. The, the, literally, it's men of bloods, plural. What what was the problem with these guys? Well, they were criminals because they were guilty of murdering innocent victims. They were cold-blooded murderers, and, and maybe it committed multiple murders because they're called men of bloods, plural. And so they were murderers. What's the rightful penalty for a murderer? Death penalty. Galatians, or rather Genesis, the Galatians does not have the death penalty. Genesis nine six says this. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So the death penalty existed for that at that time. It doesn't necessarily exist now. But those people rightfully deserve to die for their crime of murder. But notice that this is not a prayer for personal revenge. He's not saying, Lord, I want that guy dead because he did something against me. You remember David Shimei, when Shimei threw the the dirt at David that, that time, and David said, just... And the guys, his men wanted to go after him. And David said, no, don't don't go after him. Just let the Lord take care of him. David wasn't a man to go and get personal revenge. Didn't try to get personal revenge against Saul either, the king. He's asking God to slay the wicked because they flat out deserve it. They committed a murder. They deserve it. It could be at this time that David was under attack from his enemies also. He was maybe especially vulnerable or weak at this time. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. We're not given the circumstances. But David is crying out to slay the wicked, not for personal revenge, because it would honor God and it would protect others. Isn't it right for David to keep the law as the king of Israel? He says in verse 20, "...they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain." These men are blasphemers of God. They don't hesitate to speak out against God. They're guilty of breaking the third commandment. That third commandment says this, "...you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain." For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. The wicked consider God's name as absolutely worthless. Drag it through the mud. It doesn't matter to them. They don't care. Use it any way you want to. So they spoke against God. So David, in this situation, faced with these kind of enemies, is honoring God with his prayer for justice to be carried out. He says, Lord, slay these wicked murderers. And then notices David's hatred for his enemies. This is where it gets tough, verses 21 and 22, his hatred for his enemies. Look at, look at the way he says this. Wow, you talk about a, you know, people would call David a hater nowadays. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? <clears throat> do, do I not loathe those who rise up against you? <clears throat> he says, I hate them with the utmost hatred. Could he have said it any more than he did? They have become my enemies. Four times <clears throat> he uses the word hate, and one time he uses the word loathe fact, He hates them with the utmost hatred. He hates them to the extreme that so they could be hated. Why did he hate them? Because they have blasphemed God through their actions, through their words, through their murders. And and once again, David's attitude is not one of personal revenge. He's trying to get back at them. It's because he is filled with a passion for the glory of God, and he wants to honor God. And so much so as he filled with a passion for the glory of God that that. God's enemies have become David's enemies. Look at verse 20. He says, uh, he calls them, he says, they're your enemies, God, in verse 20. And now in verse 21, he says, in verse 22, he says, they have become my enemies. Your enemies, Lord, have now become my enemies. He's taking on this idea of the honor and glory of God here. There's always this identification between God and his people in the Old Testament. Just as there is, by the way, well, that's not New Testament at all. There's nothing to do with the New Testament. Well, there's this identification between Christ and his church in the New Testament. Remember Acts chapter 9 where uh, Paul, or the Lord stops uh, Paul on the road to Damascus and he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? We talked about this before. Well, Paul was persecuting the church and David says, and the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? So there's that identification between Christ and the church. It's interesting that it says in Philippians 3.18, Paul speaks of the enemies of the cross of Christ. Yes, the cross of Christ has enemies. God has enemies. Christ has enemies. He does. The church has enemies. He says in Philippians 3.18, therein will be destruction, Paul says, So these enemies of the cross of Christ. He's not speaking hatefully or mean. He's telling the truth. Galatians 1.8, Paul says, those who preach a different gospel are to be accursed, under the curse of God, under the wrath of God. 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul handed Hymenaeus and Philetus over to Satan so they were learned not to blaspheme. That's a bold thing to be doing. And so the idea, the idea of the enemies of God is not known is not unknown in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. But understand this, and I'm not going to answer this question fully tonight of, of imprecatory prayers, what does it all mean? But David in his time, going back to David now, David in his time, and in his position as king, ruling over Israel, and seeking always to enforce the law of the land, was right in what he was saying. He was right in his assessment. He was only concerned for the glory of God in his time, okay? The question is, what about New Testament believers? Didn't Mike say this morning we're to love our enemies? Part of the message. And I believe that's true. So are we to hate the enemies of God with a complete hatred in 2012? I am thinking it's 1990-something. 2012? What year is this anyway? 2012, right? Are we to hate the enemies of God with a complete hatred? Well, I think that with the coming of Christ in the New Testament, I believe the standard has been raised. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Mike said today, love your enemies, right? Pray for those who persecute you. It doesn't say to pray in a precatory prayer, like I've been known to do in my life. It says to pray for those who persecute you. So understand David and his time and his circumstances and understand the progress of Revelation and the coming of Christ and and what that means now. And so this is not a total theology on the subject of imprecatory prayers. And and honestly, I'm still working through the issue. Looking at this this week, I was was mind-boggling. I was like, oh, great. You know, this is the problem with expository preaching, by the way. Someone needs to write a book called The Problem with Expository Preaching. I'm working through the issue still. But maybe some of this helps with what we've said. And by the way, this is something all of us need to think through further and talk about and think about and study. The Lord and my enemies. And then finally in verses 23 and 24, the Lord of my prayer. The Lord of my prayer. <clears throat> David says, search me, O God, <clears throat> and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be, or see if there are, wow, King James got I me. Mean, no, see if there be, same thing here, any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting in the everlasting way. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. So David concludes with this prayer that applies to him. Didn't he do this before in Psalm 19? David talked about the great things of God, and he concludes with this prayer that applies to him. David has been grieved by the sins of God's enemies. We just saw that in verses 19 and 22, grieved by their sins, grieved by their blasphemy, their murder, their actions against God, their speaking out against God. And he wants to be sure his own sins are not grieving God. So he prays this at the end of the chapter here. Search me and know my heart. Does anybody see a, notice anything? Uh, if we were taking observations of the text, if you noticed anything about this verse? Search me and know my heart. He ends the psalm the same way he begins it. Look at verse 1. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Same words used at the end here. You've searched me and known me. God searched David and knew him because God wanted David to know, I love you, David. I want you to know I love you, and I know you inside and out. I know everything there is to know about you. And he knows all of us that way as well. But in verse 23, the same words, this is a prayer coming from David, and he asks God to search him out and to know him. In other words, David wants the Lord to explore his own heart so he can reveal what's in his heart, so he can expose any sin that's in his heart. David wants anything in his life that's between him and God to be exposed by God so he can get it right with God. He wants this intimate relationship with God. We've been talking about this intimate relationship with God this whole chapter, except for the part about the enemies. Even that was intimate because the enemies of of God had become the enemies of David. He wants this intimate relationship with God, and so he's asking God to expose sin in his heart. David cannot do what the Lord can do, and that's what? Search his own heart fully and understand it, the depths of the wickedness that's there. He can't fully understand it. But he's asking God, Lord, I can't do it, so search me and point out to me everything that's there that's wrong so I can get it right with you. I want my walk with you to be what it should be. He says, try me and know my anxious thoughts. The word try means to test the quality of something to determine, uh, to determine its quality, rather. So David says, in effect, Lord, sift me and scrutinize me, as, he, as the words were used earlier, and bring the chaff to the surface of my life. See what's there. Test me. Try me out. Know my anxious thoughts, those thoughts that are distracting, those thoughts that are worrisome. I I don't want to be filled with worry and those thoughts that prevent me from trusting you. I don't want to have thoughts that are uh, not trusting God, that are unbelief. I don't want to have all that. I don't want to act like those guys, those enemies in 19 or 22. I don't want to be like that. I want to be totally different. By the way, if you're worrying, you are not at the same time trusting God. If we are worrying about things, we're not trusting God, we're not trusting in him, we're showing unbelief, quite honestly. He says in verse 24, see if there be any hurtful way in me, any way of pain, literally, any way that's grievous, any way that causes sorrow. See if there's anything in me that causes grief or sorrow for myself or other people or for you. Because we know that sin is a hurtful thing, isn't it? This is something we need to think about. Sin is a hurtful thing. In many ways, it brings pain, it brings misery. Nothing good ever comes out of our sinful actions, by the way, ever. We think maybe we're getting something, but nothing good ever comes out of it. Let me show you three ways that sin is hurtful as we close out here. First of all, sin is hurtful to God. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God whereby you are sealed into the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. God can be grieved. And what grieves God? It's our sin, right? It's the things that we do that that are against him that that are are like these guys in 19 or 22 that were opposed to him. We can hurt God with our sin. Nothing grieves the heart of God more than my sin. And then sin can hurt others. For example, if I gossip about people and the person hears about it, he's going to be hurt. He may even be hurt deeply. In fact, the, the relationship I have with that person may be severely damaged. I can hurt other people in many ways with my sin. We need to think about how our sin, how my sin, hurts other people. Sin can hurt others. And then sin can hurt me as well. It hurts me. It causes great misery in my own soul. It causes guilt in my heart. It brings consequences I never intended. And, and so many more things. And as David could testify also in his own personal life, sin hurts me. So we need to ask God to expose our sin, to bring it to the surface and to show us our sin so we can confess it and forsake it and repent of it and get right with God. He says, finally, lead me in the, in the everlasting way. The everlasting way. The everlasting way is the opposite of the hurtful way. It's the it's opposite of the way of pain. It's the opposite of the way of sorrow and grief. It is the way of blessing, in other words. There's no pain in the everlasting way. It's the way of, of blessing. There's no pain in the, in the, in the, from the effects of sin or the consequences of sin in the everlasting way. You don't have to worry about all that. You're, you're being blessed by God. The everlasting way keeps us from untold misery in our life. It gives us an eternal perspective because it is the everlasting way, after all, versus the temporal perspective in life. It is set on the path to heaven, the, the everlasting way. It takes us all the way, as John Bunyan says, to the celestial city, heaven. That's the way the believer should walk. This was David's response to all this that he thought about God. So what is your response to all this? What is your response to the fact that God knows all about you? Do we just leave it there in the realm of theology? What is, the fa- what is your response to the fact that God knows all about you? What is your response to the fact that God is everywhere present, that he's always with you? What is your response to the fact that God sovereignly made you and foreordained the days that you have on this earth and watches over you and and, and loves you and cares for you and thinks about you. What's your response to all this? It should be the same response that David had. And we'll close as I read these two verses. Let this be our response to God. Verse 23, let this be our prayer to God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word tonight. A wonderful word that it is. We know that you intend for your your glory. We know you intend for our good. As we read these words tonight, uh, we do pray that uh, we would uh, consider uh, God, that we would meditate on on the person of God. Meditating upon your your power and your knowledge and, and your presence and your might and your thoughts and all these things. Pray it would fill our minds that we would be consumed by thoughts of God as you are thinking about us even. And we pray that we would, uh, we would, uh, that you would search our hearts tonight, know our hearts, expose to us anything that's in our lives that, are, that would become, come between us and you, Lord, uh, between us and, our, and our, between our church and you. Pray that we would be those that would be uh, repenters, as Mike often says, getting right with you, forsaking our sin, confessing it and living in the way that would please you and walking in the everlasting way. And we just pray all this tonight in Christ's name.